On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news and patient safety concerns, and in our focus segment, we will discuss the 2022 ASC Quality Reporting Requirements. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. This episode is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers and ambulatory healthcare strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 153 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for March 28th, 2022. We're recording from our studios in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast with John Gailey and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. The ASC regulatory environment is extremely dynamic and the material provided in this episode is based on information available as of the date of recording. Joining me is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. Mr. Gailey is the author of over 10 books on the ASC industry and a frequent industry speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So uh, we're, we're back. Seems like we're doing this monthly now instead of weekly, and we, we are running behind. Uh, it's been a very busy year. It's always, I know that's mm-hmm. what we say every single I know. time, but a lot, lot going on. We're opening a brand new center in Buffalo tomorrow. I'll be heading out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, congratulations to the Har- Harlem Road Ambitory Surgery Center, which got its uh, state license uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, they'll yeah. be doing their first procedures there uh, tomorrow. So I'm very excited to be with them on their first day of operation. That's mm-hmm. one of the things we like doing uh, with our new startups. And by the way, Sue, there are one of three centers that we are opening yep. in the next year. So we got a busy time. And then, of course, uh, Jenna Alvarez, my daughter, who is our senior nurse consultant in charge of the uh, startups, um, uh, handles uh, most of those things. She she doesn't like to admit, but she really does enjoy those, doesn't she? Uh, <laughs> She's very detail-oriented. She She's is. very good at Which you need to does. be when you're doing a startup. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We've been getting a lot of calls lately, too, from people that are looking to start surgery centers. So I think that the word is getting out there that that's one of those things that we mm-hmm. do uh, on a regular basis. So yeah, It is getting busy. That's why it's 7 o'clock at night, and we're recording <laughs> it, and hopefully we'll get it out at some point tomorrow, and maybe. Tomorrow, yeah, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> How soon you get back from there. And then, well, actually, you're not getting back from no, I'm heading Buffalo from tomorrow. New you're heading York right city. to the city. Yeah. So. And then, uh, but my schedule did lighten up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the Iowa State Association had to cancel their 12th annual education conference that was scheduled for uh, April 8th and 9th. I'm very yeah. sad about this. I was looking forward to going out to Iowa. I haven't been in Iowa in a long time. I've never been to this conference, but mm-hmm. it's been a long time since I've been in Iowa. So uh, I was looking forward to it. But unfortunately, and this is a trend, they weren't alone, but their uh, their attendance numbers were uh, too low to justify doing, going forward yeah. with the projects or the, with the, uh, the meetings. So. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so it's sorry about that there. And uh, so hopefully everybody heard about that by now. And mm-hmm. of course, Sue, you know, uh, it's pretty well known in the company. I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> and uh, I had mm-hmm. procrastinated long enough on the tickets and bought them yeah. like two days before. Not they long canceled. enough, though. Not long enough, right? <laughs> Not quite long enough. <laughs> we got some interesting news uh, from a family standpoint. Well, Rosie should be ready to... Um Get ready to be to have puppies soon. Yeah. We she went into heat last April, about April first, and then in October it was about mid month. So any day now, and when that happens, I'm whoever's around are going to run off to <laughs> Cornell back and forth for a week, probably for testing and yeah. trying to get the timing just exactly right. And hopefully we'll have a, a little pile of puppies. And so I have a lot to talk about, and we have a lot of pictures for after. our website too. Yep. Uh, to yep. the puppies. There's nothing That'll like. Golden Retriever puppy. So we're, mm-hmm. we're looking forward to it. It's something we've never done. I, I grew up with puppies all the time, mm-hmm. so I'm excited about it. But uh, a yeah. little nerve-wracking. I, I, I always had my mother to do all that. Now, uh, now it's all only me and you. <laughs> yeah, so. we're going to watch a bunch of videos and make sure we know what to do. And That's right. And we've been consulting with, with uh, you know, other breeders breeder. and, uh, yep. and the uh, the doctors. So I think we're, we're ready we're as ready as any par- new parents <laughs> can be, right? I know. <laughs> and tomorrow we're doing internal training on... On policies, we decided we, you know, would try to kind of standardize a little bit more what everybody knows because as we keep adding people, yeah. you know, a lot of people have their particular expertise in our company and we're trying to sort of spread that out a little bit because policies are such a huge thing right now, especially yeah, even having so gone recently. through, yeah, yeah, through all of the um, pandemic, but, um, you know, it's like something that we really are, need to be good at. It seems like surveyors are a lot, reading these policies a lot more carefully uh, recently, and uh, sometimes it's just semantics. Sometimes it's you know policies that you never think that you actually need mm-hmm. that they want to see. And yeah, like something saying we don't give blood products, and, and that's right. your whole policy. That's right. You know, <laughs> that kind of a thing. But they want us to have that stated. But you know, it's and it's a good reminder, I think, too, for people to remember to review your policy manuals periodically. Yeah. You know, and really do it. I mean, a lot of times people kind of. Say they're doing it and they change as things, as they're aware of things changing. But sometimes, you know, you just have to go back and, and read through it and make sure that nothing's, you know, outdated or, and make sure all your new people are reading your policies too. And, and double check against your accreditation manual too, if you're accredited, mm-hmm. because yeah. the accreditation standards do change and it's important that you, uh, yeah. uh, you address those. I think that's one of those areas that we do tend to, uh, uh, find challenges because mm-hmm. our, our, you know, our clients are not as familiar with the accreditation handbook as yeah. they might be with the actual conditions for coverage. And I think that's where they uh, they sometimes fall short in making sure those policy manuals have all the required, you know, because every accreditation organization has different uh, requirements as mm-hmm. to what needs to be included in that policy manual. So that's, that's a very good point. So uh, on to the news. Um, Fortunately, we don't have any uh, new uh, CMS uh, conditions for coverage, interpretive guidelines, or uh, or other notes from uh, CMS for the uh, accreditation organizations and the state agencies. Uh, that's mm-hmm. been a first. It's been a while since uh, I can say that. But uh, mm-hmm. but there are some other news, Sue. In our manager's March 14th um, edition, they reference a report by ECRI, or Emergency Care Research Institute, which issues an annual list of top 10 patient safety concerns. In the past, they usually involved device malfunctions or other type of um, medical errors. But in 2022, I'm just going, I'm just giving the top four. There were staffing shortages, no surprise there, um, COVID-19 effects on healthcare workers' mental health, 
bias and racism in addressing patient safety and vaccine coverage gaps and errors. So we can see where that's all been really influenced by the pandemic. And I just, you know, just some thoughts. The last couple of years, I think have really shown us how much our mental health and quality of life can affect us. And I remember, John, uh, your daughter, Kristen, she's an, an occupational therapy assistant, and she works with the elderly. And she had said that the death rates at her facility had gone up dramatically at the beginning of the pandemic, even before they had any COVID cases. And it seems that that was due to the isolation of the re- that the residents were experiencing right. when their family members, you know, couldn't visit any longer. Yeah, and as many of you know, I'm a, a Presbyterian minister also, mm-hmm. and during that time, we were seeing um, a lot of, uh, of uh, depression, um, especially as, yeah. you know, trying to FaceTime with family members and, and in many mm-hmm. cases do last rites and things like that. Uh, it just, uh, it, you know, it wasn't, it, it was not a, an ideal situation for, mm-hmm. for patients, uh, in, in all areas and not just nursing. I and mean, we know that people delayed care, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they're nervous about coming back into uh, the surgery center. And of course, yeah. when we separate, we, you know, we, we joke about how nice it's been not to have as many family members mm-hmm. in the surgery center, um, you know, yeah. when the surgery is occurring. But let's look at the flip side is that for the that patient. support system mm-hmm. is not there for those patients when they're going through the procedure. And I think yeah. we have to be cognizant of that and the impact on their on their mental health. And, you know, it isn't just the, the patient. So we've also talked a lot about staff retention and how important it is to build loyalty and job satisfaction, yeah. you know, that with how you treat the staff. And so many people are also thinking about their work-life balance, and a lot of people are retiring early. I really think there's been such a big shift in priorities. And part of the frustration that many healthcare workers are experiencing now is the feeling that they're not able to give patients the quality of care that they would like to. So not only are they feeling burned out, but it's like when they see that they're doing everything they can do and they just don't feel like they have the time to do do the job how they really want to do just because they're so rushed. Yeah, there's so few and... and, and, uh, (sighs) The pressures to, I, I mean, I, the, the number of cases is back to normal, but mm-hmm. the the number of Staff. people to take mm-hmm. care of them are, are low. And it, and it doesn't yeah. matter whether it's nurses or techs or or even the front reception staff. All of it has a bearing on it. And that's something we have to remember. Mm-hmm. It's not just nurses we have to keep, um, you know, happy here. Yeah, uh, everybody. Everybody in the healthcare uh, mm-hmm. system. Well, we've said so many times that even the receptionist, you know, the people that are greeting yeah. your patients when they're walking in, they could be the most important people there Set because, the you know, that people walk in and if they if they don't feel welcome and or they feel like they're just standing around waiting for somebody to notice them, that, you know, it, it's hard to recover from that. Right, right. So, you know, just make sure your staff knows how much they're appreciated and any concerns that they have, if you, you know, take those seriously. And, you know, that's one way to, I, I think that's one of the, can be one of the benefits of surgery centers as opposed to hospitals, even though they're just as busy. But, you know, hopefully there's more of a team feeling and that can make a huge difference for retaining your staff. Well, and I think as we're talking, we're talking to the choir, quite literally, to use a uh, preaching to the preaching choir. Preaching to yeah, right. <laughs> preaching to the choir. Uh, that um, you know, often it is the physicians too that have to be reminded of the mm-hmm. importance of keeping the staff yeah. uh, happy, uh, and that's very difficult because they're in a rush. You know, they want to get the cases done. They get frustrated, you know, with any delays and things like that, and they might say things that uh, you know are are not appropriate or 
you know, don't recognize the stress that everybody else is under. And mm-hmm. I think it's a good conversation to have, yeah. you know, and, and the way you put it is, hey, you like your nurses here, right? You, you, you like the people that uh, are able to turn over quickly. If you mm-hmm. want to keep them here, you got to yeah. you got to treat them well. And even just a, a, a nice thank you. Uh, sometimes it, it, it's not all about the money. It's not all about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the training there. Sometimes it's just uh, just as important as just some kind words. Mm-hmm. And it might not be maybe you're rushing or not rushing through a, a, a surgery, but you know, you're, you're obviously focused on the patient there, but afterwards just, you know, going by and saying, Hey, that was, you know, I appreciate all your work in there. And and that does make a huge difference. And even with the stress with the patients, I think it can make your job so much harder when people are so stressed, they they aren't necessarily focusing on what you're saying or your post-op instructions. And there was, um, Actually, in that same issue of or a manager, there was a study from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis that focused on reducing post-op falls. And it was interesting that there was no reduction in falls in the intervention group, which was um, patient education, home medication review, hazard identification in the home environment, which a lot of us do anyway. But this, you know, was just kind of really amped up. Um, and the issue was that there was very low adherence to the recommendations. Yeah. So I think it relates to what, you know, we've just been talking about that we have to learn more about how to communicate with our staff, our patients, and take into account other life factors besides the strictly medical decisions. And, you know, maybe the patients didn't have any choice in what type of home environment they went to. And we could delve in a little bit more. We could possibly help them making, you know, other suggestions for smaller changes um, rather than just reading off of a paper that you do this, 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 and, you know, remove any throw rugs and that kind of thing. Um, You know, maybe they couldn't get a new medication prescription filled right away because they didn't have transportation. So, you know, I, even though everybody's really overwhelmed right now and short on time, but I, I do think healthcare is moving in the direction of dealing with all types, um, you know, all aspects of a person's health and how their life circumstances affect them. And I think the pandemic just really, brought you know, that. brought that out. I yeah. know I'm kind of on a soapbox here, but I do think it's important because, you know, it's it's. If you want things to go well and you want people to listen, you want to, you know, do the post-op care of their um, surgical sites, well, they we have to find a way to get through to people and make them understand how important it is. Well, yeah, I was just thinking as you're just saying these things, how important it is that we communicate among ourselves and we give people an opportunity to speak up. Mm-hmm. Patients, you know, ask yes. them questions. Don't rush them through it. I mean, yeah. you're going to feel that rush. But if they have questions or, you know, if it looks like they – I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. you can tell that they're not paying attention. Yeah. Um, you know, following up on it. Encourage uh, a question if, if you can tell they kind of need – that they're not following you. And that's a benefit of having family members, too, like you said, if they're not, even if we can call them on the phone and and give them the instructions, that's not necessarily the same as having them right there. Right. I I was thinking today, you know, we have our weekly um, uh, Zoom session with Mm -hmm. all of our employees uh, every uh, Monday morning. And it's funny that uh, I I was a little late today and and, uh, I noticed that the, uh, we didn't get to start talking about uh, business mm-hmm. right away. And and sometimes I feel rushed about it. Today, fortunately, I wasn't. But I, I was realizing as I'm listening to people, that is just as important, you know, listening mm-hmm. to other people, you know, what what's challenging in their life? You know, why are they having, um, yeah. you know, why are they so stressed out? Because it's not always work. You know, there's always, always things going on. And, you mm-hmm. know, it dawned on me today that that's just as important. Um, and um, especially a company like ours, you mm-hmm. know, where people 
uh, are not in the same physical environment at the same time. Yes. But but think about it in your own surgery center. Everybody works in different areas, and they often have very little interaction with mm-hmm. people that are not in that same area, the pre-op, the intraoperative yeah. areas, et cetera. Especially now, distancing more at, yeah. at breaks and lunches, and they probably just need to sometimes express what's bothering them. Right. Or, you know, and you have to maybe not pry, but you may have to really ask a little bit, find out, make sure that... that they're doing okay in other aspects, and, and do right. they need any extra, any support? Yeah. And, and of course, that's, uh, uh, that's part of being a good employer is helping them to, uh, you know, to uh, be successful in all aspects of their life also. Yeah. So. And I had signed on at 10 minutes before that meeting, yeah. and already most of the company was already there. So I, I think they sneak on a half an hour <laughs> earlier just to, just to be able to, to chat a little bit. Yeah. It is funny. <laughs> You're right. I mean, uh, um, <laughs> And by the way, uh, the same thing's been happening. It's interesting because we, uh, I know we keep talking about it, but I'll, I'll bring it up again. Our Saturday uh, morning sessions with our patron mm-hmm. members and yeah. our boot camp members uh, are becoming um, a great opportunity for people just to, you know, there, there's always questions. You know, we always yeah. have about five or six really good questions that are relevant. Somebody talking about a recent survey experience. Mm-hmm. But most of the rest of the time we're talking about how, okay, how do you do this? How would you react to it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I I've, I really enjoy I'm those Saturday. Me. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's a big deal on Saturday mornings yeah. we do this. We've been yeah. doing it do over a year it. now. So uh, <laughs> if uh, don't don't forget, you can become a patron member and, and uh, have a, a nice uh, – a way to complain to other people that <laughs> <laughs> or just come on we had somebody sign on we were just getting ready to sign off which was fine because we, we like we said we enjoy these but it was gosh an hour and a half almost into it yeah and somebody signed on just said you know i wasn't able to make it earlier but i've got a couple of important questions and you know she was able to run them by john and right you know it's it's we were really able to useful but like said, we, yeah. we do enjoy it And I saw some other news on overlapping surgeries. So recently, Massachusetts General Hospital was fined $14.6 million for overlapping surgeries that did not meet the specific requirements. Um, There are requirements to have language in the consent about the overlapping process, and and the surgeon must be present for the key or critical portions of the procedure. There are also billing issues. So if this is being done in your center, make sure you're meeting all the requirements. And I... I don't want to be the one to, you know, advise exactly what they are, but there are definitely, you just want to make sure that you're you're going by the book with this. Yeah, I think that this tends to happen when we see uh, doctors uh, like relying on a PA mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. another doctor, maybe two doctors are working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you, you have to be very explicit about who's going to be closing, who's doing all the procedures um, uh, in the consent and in the schedule yes. there. I don't know the specifics of that. We are giving the specifics of it, but uh, but I've seen it in surgery centers over the years yeah. where people are not always careful about. It. We ran into it recently uh, uh, during a uh, when I was doing a survey. We saw a schedule. We had to ask a bunch of questions because uh, yes. there was an overlap in the uh, the schedule, and, and, and mm-hmm. it ended up being all right. Mm-hmm. But it was an innocent thing because they were overlapping the schedule because they were uh, condensing the. Um, uh, they had a lot of cancellations, mm-hmm. so they knew some people weren't going to show up. Uh, but you really don't want your schedule to reflect it that way. You're going to have to find a yeah. better way uh, uh, to uh, to reflect it in the schedule. Otherwise, it does not look good. Yeah, between that and then, of course, the billing issues. If it looks like you're double billing, right. so Absolutely. again, I don't. I think you need somebody with more expertise in that area. But it's just something that I I have seen done before. So I just wanted to remind people to sure. really look into that if you're if that's something that's happening. Um, and a paper written by Apex. 
COVID-19 Task Force, which was titled Between a Rock and a Hard Place, um, Recommendations for Balancing Patient Safety and Pandemic Response, explores the lessons infection preventionists have learned during their fight against COVID-19. And this highlights actions recommended at both the healthcare facility and the governmental levels to help prepare for future endemics. And John will put a link in the show notes so you can download that paper if you want to read it. But just here are some highlights. They recommended that Congress should fund NIOSH to develop a universal one-size-fits-all respiratory device. And they point out that fit testing is time-consuming and it complicates a quick response to a pandemic. So that would be great if they I were able to do that. I think that would be fantastic, given all the challenges mm-hmm. we've had and even explaining N95s, KN95s, yes. mm-hmm. uh, the, the different types of masks that we have in surgery. Uh, I, I, when I when I heard you talk about that, I thought that's the most exciting outcome I know. from the whole thing. <laughs> <It would be. laughs> um, they suggest researching mask effectiveness and develop standards for masks to protect against different types of infectious diseases, and then share that research with the public to build trust in the mask and using masks as necessary. Because this really was, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. I think, especially at the beginning, and and I, I still don't think people know exactly what they should be doing. So. That is important. Um, Develop better systems to track and rapidly manage supply chain issues for PPE, cleaning, and hand hygiene products, including anticipation of the general public's use of these items. So, again, another lesson learned. Make clear recommendations concerning the extended use, reuse, and decontamination of PPE for healthcare workers and when it is safe and appropriate. Encourage or require infection preventionists' input on and participation in incident command, emergency preparedness teams, and development of certain policies and procedures. Increase the ability to rapidly gather and share data between providers, public health agencies, federal agencies, and the public while ensuring privacy. Fund ongoing public health education about vaccinations. And during a pandemic, fund IPC departments to address vaccine hesitancy among healthcare workers. Invest in incentivizing universities to create an academic pathway for infection preventionists who are the backbone of infection prevention and control infrastructure in a wide variety of healthcare settings, as well as assisting non-healthcare employers with education and work safety. And that's such an important one. I think they're really recognizing what uh, you know, an important so, role they play in, in not just in healthcare. As a sub-profession of the nursing field, mm-hmm, I think, mm-hmm. absolutely. And legislation has been introduced to create a loan repayment program to attract people to this field. And the Department of Labor should recognize infection preventionists as a separate and distinct employment category. Um, You know, they've been practicing for 50 years, and it's time to make it official. uh, You know, an official thing. But I think there's a lot of good ideas. Yeah, a lot of, and it really does point toward the the fact that you know the IP position, the infection preventionist position. Is now a, a career path, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah. it's so important um, that in many centers, especially the larger ones, this is a full time job, mm-hmm. and perhaps even more so uh, in the future, uh, in mid sized surgery centers, it might yeah. become a full time yeah. job. So I agree. So uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to come back and talk about ASC quality reporting. Uh, as we all know, it is a Medicare reimbursement. Uh, requirement and reporting uh, deadline is coming up. It's uh, May 16th, 2022. And Sue, what I did is I took the session that I 
presented at the Finance and Accounting Seminar in mm-hmm. the fall, and I took the recording of it, the the audio portion of it, and included that in our middle section here. And I'll make the slides available on the um, in the show notes also, so that you can go through it. Uh, but it is an hour; it's one of our longer uh, mm-hmm. uh, section okay. twos. Uh, but I thought it would be a, a good way for everybody to kind of get a very uh, concise overview of all the requirements that are in there. So let's take a break and we'll come back for uh, a discussion of the ASC quality reporting requirements. Our listener patron program, also known as ASC Central, has really taken off over the past 12 months, and we are so grateful to all of our over 100 members. Our patron members help support our efforts here on the podcast and get a number of great benefits also. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is the longest-running podcast dedicated exclusively to the ASC industry. ASC Central provides members with a wealth of management tools and resources, including regular members-only Zoom sessions with John and other members to discuss relevant topics, quarterly Zoom meetings where we update patron members with important issues in the ASC industry, periodic study sessions for leaders that are planning on taking the CASC or CAPE exam, and access to a large database that includes federal regulations, interpretive guidelines, and the state regulations, checklists for administrators and nurse managers, example meeting minute templates, example policies and procedures, budgeting and financial projection tools, risk assessments and example forms, and much, much more. Members also get discounts on books written by John Gailey, ranging from $10 to $80 per book, and can even schedule a personalized mock survey with John and save over $1,000. For more information and to access this additional content, please visit ASCPodcast.com or ASC-Central.com. Our first presentation is on Medicare quality reporting updates in 2022. Just a little bit of background is that on an annual basis, CMS publishes uh, in July a proposed rule and in November, the final rule. And that rule affects both ambulatory surgery centers and hospital outpatient departments or HOPDs. And the rule uh, has two major components that are important to us anyway. One is the payment rule, the part of it that discusses uh, payment changes. And the second part in the last 10 years, at least, has been related to Medicare quality reporting. So in order to maintain your license, I'm sorry, your certification as a Medicare certified ambulatory surgery center, you have to, well, in order to be continue to be paid at the full amount um, by Medicare, you have to uh, deal with the Medicare quality reporting requirements, which we're going to go into next. So here's the learning objectives. We want to discuss Medicare quality reporting, review the changes in 2022, and then ultimately discuss what needs to be done to prepare for those changes. So a little bit of uh, quality reporting overview. So this is right from uh, the uh, quality reporting websites, and uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll make sure that there are some links for you to, to get into this information. But the Ambulatory Surgical Center Medicare Quality Reporting Program is a pay-for-reporting quality data program finalized by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, meaning at the present time, uh, as long as you are reporting the different Medicare measures or quality measures, you'll continue to keep getting the, the updates uh, for your Medicare rate. In the future, there is an expectation that this program will uh, transition into a a pay-for-quality 
uh, system. Uh, that has not happened yet. There really is no time frame for that to happen at the present time. But we know that it'll, it'll eventually become part of the program. So that's why it's so important that you understand how the program works and understand that even in this pay for reporting period, um, it, you know, failure to do the reporting will result in a what, what is really a permanent loss and an increase in your Medicare rate. Um, so uh, even, you know, one year of lost reporting could could uh, mushroom into a much bigger problem for you. Mm-hmm. Under this program, ASCs report quality of care data for standardized measures, which we're going to discuss and receive the full annual update to their ASC annual payment rate. The initial program requirements were included. So this started in 2012, actually, uh, as part of the uh, 2012 uh, payment rule. And, uh, you know, the design of the program is to put together programs that will or or, uh, measures that will promote higher quality and more efficient health care for Medicare beneficiaries. Now, even if you're not providing care to Medicare beneficiaries, you still have to participate in this program uh, to get the, the, the complete Medicare uh, payment increase. Participating ASCs agree, and this is important, that they will allow CMS to publicly report data for the quality measures uh, as stated in the current uh, OPPS and ASC rule. So here's a summary of the uh, program requirements. To meet ASCQR, AS, Ambulatory Surgery Center Quality Reporting Program requirements and receive the pull payment update. In other words, this would impact your payment update. ASCs must meet data collection and data submission requirements on an annual basis and submit that data on a timely basis to whatever portal is involved. ASCs submit data for quality measures by submitting data via the web-based tool on the QualityNet secure, secure portal. So there's actually two parts to this because uh, the QualityNet.com org website is where you submit most of the data, but one of the changes in 2020 two is requiring you to go back and start reporting to NHSN also. So this is a little bit uh, inaccurate uh, in the sense that to completely submit all this data, part of it is going to have to be to NHSN also. ASCs that do not meet the requirements, the reporting requirements, including allowing the data to be publicly available, may incur a 2% point reduction in any payment update provided under the revised ASC payment system for that year. So for example, the increase this year was 2%. Start at 2.7 minus a 0.7% uh, payment reduction coming down to 2%. So if you did not submit data, and it would be two years prior, so if you did not submit data for 2020, if I remember, I'm doing my math correctly here, then for 2022, you would receive no payment update. You would still receive Medicare payment for your Medicare cases, but there would no, be no payment update because it would be 2% update minus the 2% reduction because of failure to report coming down to a 0% reduction. Did I do that math right, Christina? I think so. I think you're pretty good. <laughs> yeah. As an accountant, I sometimes get the numbers right. <laughs> <clears throat> so ASC should designate a quality net security administrator. Please do this because um, <laughs> with all the turnover that we're having now, this is kind of important. Make sure you know who that that uh, security administrator is because that is the individual that uh, provides access to other um, other users of the system. So you really need to make sure you have an administrator as well as other users. And uh, that administrator should be the one that submits documentation required for the creation of the, the account. Uh, and by the way, remember to do this at least four to six weeks prior to the submission deadline. In other words, don't wait until uh, April or May. What I cannot even remember when the data is due yet. I'm not sure that that date has been set. It's in April though, generally, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, um, 
<clears throat> so just make sure yeah. that let's put it this way start you know setting up your quality net dot uh, org um account uh in january just so that you're sure that you have it and that it doesn't go uh dormant um and then the security administrator will report web-based measured data via the web-based tool and be able to access available data submission reports uh, for more information go to qualitynet.org so let's start talking about the different measures for uh 2022 so for uh the uh, the current year 2022 payment determination um these are uh the four measures that have to be reported during the current year and i'm going to go through each of these a little bit later but let me just introduce them asc9 which is endoscopy and polyp surveillance uh asc11 which is cataract improvement in uh, patients visual function within 90 days and by the way this is a voluntary measure this year forgot to mention that there uh asc13 which is normothermia which has been been required for quite a number of years and asc14 unplanned anterior vitrectomy which is always a controversial subject with uh, ophthalmology centers which we're going to talk about that controversy there whoa i guess the screen didn't quite uh everything didn't quite fit on there sorry asc9 endoscopy polyp surveillance appropriate follow-up interval for normal colonoscopy and average risk patients so i think all of you that do uh endoscopy probably are aware of this but if you're considering doing it or if you haven't been doing it uh here's some information so this is directly from the qualitynet.org um, uh, website uh, it is part of the uh, the toolkit that they provide to you for reporting the measures are submitted via a web-based tool. And here's the description. So it's the percentage of patients between the ages of 50 and 75 years of age that who receive a screening colonoscopy without a biopsy or a polypectomy who have had a recommended follow-up interval of at least 10 years for repeat colonoscopy documented in their colonoscopy report. And the numerator is the patients who had a recommended follow-up interval of at least 10 years for repeat colonoscopy documented in their colonoscopy report. Uh, and the denominator is all patients aged between 50 and 75 years of age receiving a screening colonoscopy without a biopsy or polypectomy. So obviously, they're trying to make sure that there's an appropriate follow-up interval documented in your records. Now, you know, there's a lot of tools. And if you're involved in the uh, doing GI procedures, especially if you're single specialty, I'm sure you know quite a bit about this and, and are well aware of this as a regular tool that's being used and should be reported through your quality improvement uh, program. So this is one of those measures that's not only being reported as part of the, the ASQR, but also as part of your quality improvement program. Most of us, well, you know, uh, Anne and if Lori were on, this is the type of thing that we would expect to see as part of your quality uh, improvement program in a, in a GI center or any center that's doing uh, GI procedures in a, in a multi-specialty setting. ASC 11 cataracts improvement in patients visual function within 90 days following cataracts. This is the one which I'm sure uh, we're going to have a lot of conversations about and this is the yeah, one that is causing the most controversy right now. Lori so, had mentioned it um, yeah. the, based on what, how are we going to know? What's going on after the fact? Yeah, this is literally an impossible measure. And ASCA has fought this over and over again. And the good news is we it is voluntary for 2022. Uh, the bad news is that, you know, it is expected to, to be implemented in the future. So uh, we'll keep fighting it and hopefully it'll go away. But you do need to start thinking about how you're going to do this if it doesn't go away. Because we all know that the government doesn't doesn't always think about how we're going to carry this out. Um, when they put these rules together. So this is a measure that will be submitted through a web-based tool, meaning that you'd go to qualitynet.org. Uh, 
And here's the description. It's the percentage of patients aged 18 years and older who had cataract surgery and had improvement in visual function achieved within 90 days following the cataract surgery based on completing a preoperative and postoperative visual function survey. So the numerator is going to be, of course, those patients 18 years and older who had an improvement within 90 days based upon that instrument. And the denominator is going to be all patients aged 18 years and older who had cataract surgery and completed both a preoperative and postoperative visual <clears throat> function survey. So as we all know, I mean, we provide the facility for the surgery to be done. We're not involved in determining if the patient is appropriate for the surgery. We need to make sure that the physician is doing that appropriately, mm -hmm. uh, but we have no follow-up with the patient after this procedure is done. So that's why when we say this is going to be impossible to, uh, uh, to carry out, uh, I mean, we're going to have to create systems. We're going to have to create an ongoing relationship with the, um, the doctor's office. And, and then the other issue is going to be, does the uh, surgeon actually have this information. You know, we're going to have to have a good relationship with that office to determine, to make sure that they're aware that we need this data. Uh, I mean, I think the, uh, uh, the key uh, thing there is that they're expecting us to use a visual function survey, but of course, how do we get that? And, you know, who prepares it and how are you going to get it back to the surgery center? So more to come on this one, but this is in my view. And, and when I talk to, uh, you know, the president of ASCA a couple months ago, he, he said, this is the one that they're fighting the most right now. So, <clears throat> so ASC 13, normothermia has been around for a long time uh, or for quite a number of years, I should say. And uh, I'm assuming most of you are doing this, but it is also a measure that's submitted via web-based tool. It's a little more complicated. This measure is used to assess the percentage of patients having surgical procedures under general or neuroaxial anesthesia for 60 minutes or more in duration who are normothermic within 15 minutes of arrival in the PACU. And the, norma, the numerator, of course, is going to be surgery patients with a body temperature equal to or greater than 96.8 degrees recorded within 15 minutes of arrival in PACU. So in other words, you're going to be need to be tracking, and this is not just for Medicare patients, this is for all of your patients, what is the temperature of the patient uh, after their arrival within 15 minutes of arrival in PACU. And the denominator is all patients, regardless of age, who undergo those surgical procedures under those that same type of anesthesia if it's in uh, longer than 90 minutes. So if you're doing a GI procedure unless and cataract surgeons, unless they're not doing a really good job, I, I guess, um, it's going to be very rare that you're going to have uh, this situation where somebody is um, having uh, general anesthesia that's over 60 minutes. So so where are you going to get this data? Of course, it's through the medical records, as well as anesthesia administration and nursing records. Uh, those all can serve as data sources. Uh, you should be having clinical logs designed to capture information relevant to normothermia. And that's usually how most people do this. So again, this is not a new measure. It is continuing into 2022. And also in 2022 is our favorite one uh, for ophthalmology patients, ASC14, which is unplanned anterior vitrectomy. And again, th this has not changed. It has been around for a while, but I do want to remind you, and, and perhaps many of our listeners might not be familiar with all the ASC. Maybe this isn't something that you're involved in, but this is probably uh, helpful background information. So this is also a measure submitted via a web-based tool. Uh, and its description is this measure is used to assess the percentage of cataract surgery patients who have had an unplanned anterior vitrectomy. Uh, the numerator is all cataract patients who had that vitrectomy, and the denominator is all cataract surgery patients. Now, this becomes, and the information comes from ASC medical records, incident and occurrence reports and variance reports. So uh, what we have been seeing, and I don't know, uh, 
Christina, if you've had any involvement in this, or uh, I know, Anne, you've seen it. Um, the challenge has been now people are, the doctors who appear to be, many of the ophthalmologists are very afraid of this statistic because I think they believe that it is going to be uh, reflect poorly on that, especially when this information is is published um, by CMS, that now they're saying, I, we've had doctors that are now scheduling every single patient with a vitrectomy. Uh, in other words, indicating that there's a possibility yes. that a vitrectomy might occur, which is wrong. Uh, I mean, first of all, <laughs> I, you know, I would make the argument that if you're planning to do a vitrectomy, then that means you're planning to to, to have a problem, you're planning to do poor quality care and, uh, and, and anticipating that you're, you're not going to perform a good cataract surgery. And let's face it, not every vitrectomy is going to have occurred. Not every um, uh, situation that where that happens is going to be because of, uh, of a surgeon doing something wrong. You know, we have very difficult cataracts. Uh, we have patients that are, uh, that have capsules that are quite compromised and, and this is just going to happen. And I've argued all along that, first of all, this is one of those measures that you as a, as an ophthalmology center better be tracking. This is, this is one of those that, uh, is, is almost assuredly, almost assuredly should be part. Well, assuredly should be part of your quality improvement measures that you're tracking on a regular basis and reporting to your quality improvement committee. And for um, many years, we've had problems getting good good statistics as to what is uh, an appropriate average of vitrectomies. Uh, and now with this information being available through the Medicare program, we do start to have that information. So again, I really encourage you to, uh, to recognize, I mean, if the doctors want to schedule all of their cases with uh, uh, vitrectomy, that's fine, but you still have to call it an unplanned anterior vitrectomy when you're tracking it. And this is something that, uh, of course, this information is is going to be widely available, uh, and that is the frustration I think the doctors have with this. Anne or Christina, any observations? Go ahead. Yeah, if I may, um, and I just wanted to get the clarification from you so that um, everybody would know is that you're mentioning to, that you would still have to report it, but um, um, or and there are times when you know there is a planned vitrectomy, for example, for retinal problems that they're um, they they're they're going to be um, um, observing while they're doing the cataract procedures too, etc. But you know I have seen exactly what you're saying that the doctors are saying with possible yeah. anterior vitrectomy because they don't want that mark on them, um, and I absolutely think that that is uh, abuse of um, yeah. and you know, of what they're trying to do. Um, but for those that they are saying with an anterior vitrectomy, because I have seen those and that is, you know, basically you kind of look at what the diagnosis were as well and yeah. what the history and physical was from a coding standpoint. Um, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily consider that to be reporting if it was truly a reason, a, a medical necessity and diagnosis for that anterior vitrectomy to be performed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, and, you know, of course, I used to run an eye surgery center, and there certainly were situations, as you've described. And you're right. I I kind of went off the rails there. And because no, I you think you didn't, you're, you're on the rails. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I've seen bit. this abuse, and I agree with you. There are circumstances when physicians go into it knowing that that capsule has been compromised and that there really is no way to avoid. <laughs> 
a vitrectomy or, or there's like a 90% chance that it's going to happen. Uh, and so I think what you've just demonstrated, Christine, is that this is, this is actually going to make the job of the, the coder much more difficult here, because I think there has to be a relationship or a conversation be, if, if the doctors are going to do this. In other words, have every single one of their cases uh, coded with a, or uh, scheduled with an unplanned vitrectomy. That puts yourself, puts you in a situation where your quality improvement person who is uh, tracking the vitrectomies has to communicate with the only person that I can think of that's really going to understand this, and that's the coder you know, by reading the medical record and that information. Does that sound an appropriate action? That, that does. And that, that becomes a trend that, yeah. as we call it, of um, a physician when they're, as I mentioned yesterday, the standard of care, he's always going to be doing this, or he's always potentially going to be doing something. That's a red flag to yeah. anybody, including um, quality reporting um, aspects. Yeah. And then the carriers, the carriers will go ballistic on it too. And that's a good yeah, yeah. warning for those that decide to do this. And and we talk about this when we talk about quality improvement or report, you know, quality improvement in general is that we need to re-educate our uh, clinicians, uh, especially our physicians, that uh, reporting incidents is not meant to be a punitive process. It's meant to be something that we we're always trying to look at what's going on in in uh, in our facilities and try to find ways to improve uh, the quality of care. And the best way to do that is to be ob obviously be able to look at any situations that fall outside of what we what our expectations are. Uh, we don't want to have anterior vitrectomies, but we know they're going to occur. Just because they occur doesn't mean that you're a bad doctor. Certainly doesn't mean that. Uh, and uh, all we're trying to find is, you know, how, how do your numbers compare to other doctors and recognizing we, we see when we're looking at these statistics, some doctors will have a higher rate. And it doesn't mean that we're going to say, doctor, you know, you're doing bad quality care. We that Our next step after we see those numbers is, you know, why is that happening? Well, maybe this doctor takes on some of the most difficult patients. Maybe he's actually the cataract surgeon that everyone goes to when they know that this patient is going to have a very difficult cataract. Uh, you know, so in that way, you might find yourself with Dr. A with a higher rate of vitrectomies than Dr. B. And Dr. B you know, it takes the easiest cataracts, the smallest cataracts, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the less hard ones and gives all of the difficult ones to, to, to the other doctor there. And that's the reason for that difference in the, in those numbers. And, and that's what we document in the quality improvement minutes, um, as we're right. going through that to demonstrate that there is a reason for that. It's not going to be punitive. That's right. That's right. So uh, that's a great example. I mean, and, and thank you, actually, Christina, I think that, you know, again, this is why we, we love talking these things through because I, you know, I've, I've gotten kind of upset recently with the number of our doctors that have headed in that direction. And I never thought that, you know, um, that this is a good example of how we really need to, we, we need to get that poor coder out of their, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the cave that they uh, lock themselves in and have a conversation of quality improvement. And it's not a bad example too, Christine, I'm just thinking out loud here of, you know, we, we want to have our quality improvement committee to be, you know, well-constituted. And if that uh, coder is willing, it might be an interesting thing to have them show up at uh, quality improvement meetings every once in a while. I think they could provide some good feedback. I'm sure they'll be pretty quiet in the corner, but it's not a bad I idea. I think they would um, be a good, just as we kind of talked about yesterday with that, with the bill, you know, making sure there's an ASC representative, yeah. make sure there's from the reimbursement side or from the coder side with some of these medical procedures, you know, quote unquote, they may not be an RN, but they have to know all about this medical terminology, the procedures, what's involved yeah. as much as much as the nurses do. Um, and that also lends to your case costing 
as well in your contracts is the coders know what gets bundled in and the coders know what's paid and not paid typically for those procedures in your surgery center. So they really do need to be included in a lot of those clinical areas where there might be meetings. Yeah. Of course, it's so different. Well, no, I mean, it's just so difficult nowadays to even get quality improvement meetings going. I mean, in post-pandemic right now, getting our quality improvement committee meeting together, you know, now we're starting to do some of them by Zoom, of course, if we have to. Uh, But that does open up an opportunity for people to be involved, you know, that might not be able to stay. You know, maybe your coder only works for, you know, you know, from six in the morning until three, whatever it is, and you hold the meetings later on. But you know, allowing people to participate in other ways and be willing to pay them for that because, or, or give them, you know, time off to compensate for that, that, that involvement. I really do encourage, you know, very uh, participative uh, quality improvement meetings that involve people from different disciplines, not just the medical director and the, the director of nursing, but you know, everybody else that you can get in there and have a really good conversation. Don't forget a, your pharmacist. Yeah. And your pharmacist. Yeah. And, and those are, you know, it's way, way beyond the scope of this particular uh, uh, conference, but, but it does get to the point that even I, I would venture to say many of our business office managers uh, who might be participating in this conference here are not part of the quality improvement committee. And I would make that argument that they absolutely should be that quality improvement encompasses all aspects of the operation, not just the clinical care. Okay. I'll get off my soapbox and thank you, uh, Christina, for, for bringing that up. Some other measures. So uh, ASC one, uh, which is uh, so ASC one through four are measures that used to be claims based, and ASC one is patient burns, ASC two is patient falls, ASC three is wrong side, wrong site, wrong patient, wrong procedure, wrong implant, basically anything wrong. And ASC four is as hospital transfer admission. These were previously suspended. They were claims based measures in the past. I'm blanking on which year they were suspended, but it's about two years ago. Christina, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they will begin again with 2023 data collection. So they have been held off, which means that the payment, and keep in mind, the payment always lags by two years. So when we collect data for 2023, reported in 2024, it'll affect payment in 2025. Uh, so they do expect, uh, they did hold it off for this year. It's not going to happen in 2022, but be ready to start gathering that data in the future. Here's my recommendation. You should be gathering this data anyway. These are all measures that are part of your quality improvement program anyway. In the past, they were only measures that you gathered for Medicare patients. In the future, they will be for all patients. And John, if if I may add to that, um, in when we were reporting from the claims based, there was a G code that was utilized. Mm-hmm. It was required, um, yay, nay, or indifferent, basically. And when it it was suspended, the um, Medicare had said that it could still be reported. It's not a big deal if they people didn't want to just completely stop just to keep in the realm of things. So at this point, since it will be going web based. It is good to just determine within your facility, or is it still being indicated in your system with the G codes or with the on the claims? It didn't hurt if it was, but you know that would be the opportunity to tell the or educate the billing and coding that it it's probably not going to be needed at all, and they can cease and desist on reporting it. 
That's a good point. Uh, and one I completely forgot about that, that some people are still reporting it. So we probably better step back a step, Christina, and, and describe what we mean by claims-based uh, reporting. What we mean by that is that on the claims that went on Medicare claim, mm-hmm. that went out on a Medicare claim, there were four different codes that you would use. They were what we refer to as G codes that would basically signal uh, the Medicare system as to each of these uh, various measures here. Um, and so that actually pushed the responsibility on your billing department to do the reporting for these claims-based measures. Uh, when they suspended the requirement for this, they allowed you to continue putting these codes in your claims. And some systems basically just continue to report it uh, because they were used to it anyway, and there was an expectation it would come back. Um, but uh, to your point, Christina, um, in the future, we probably should remove them. And in other words, I, you know, voluntary reporting just is irrelevant now. So you should in the future decide to get rid of them. That's right. And, and I will say, you know, and I know that people are really good about, okay, double checking for each, each issue. Um, But even then what we saw when we would go in and do these business assessments were the automatic application of there had been no problem coding yeah. um, on the G codes, and it was the the default. It was an automatic default just entered on the claim, and if it was conveyed to the billing business department that there had been an issue, then they were told to override, and a, they missed um, a few opportunities to because of the default issue. Yeah. So that's something to just make sure that. Um, you've got your processes as to when something truly is reportable as far as wrong sides, patient, um, patient fall, et cetera. Right, right. Well said. Okay. Um, Susan, my favorite topic, OAS caps. <laughs> so measure ASC 15A through E is outpatient ambulatory surgery or OAS caps survey measure. How deep do I go into this? Because <laughs> this is a big topic. OAS CAPS is, is the ASC version of the CAPS program that, are, that is being used in hospitals, which is so controversial. So hospitals are required to uh, hire an outside organization to do uh, patient surveys. And that survey is done in a number of different ways. It could be through a telephone call. It could be uh, through a web-based uh, conversation. It could be done through email. And the patients are asked a series of questions. There's over 30 questions. And those questions just get really into the weeds there. And Medicare uh, CMS has proposed that ASCs also have uh, this type of a system, which would be referred to as OAS caps with 30 plus questions. So imagine yourself in a scenario. Yeah, I mean, we all, uh, hopefully you're all sending out uh, patient satisfaction surveys to your patients and get information back. You know, some of them, you know, might have 10 questions. We really encourage people to keep that number very small, like five questions, which are easy for patients to answer and provide good feedback to you. But imagine yourself in a scenario where patients are given a survey with over 30 questions. How many of them do you think are going to go through uh, when they're happy uh, and complete all 30 plus? It's, it's actually almost 40 questions, if I remember right. I so, think it's 35, yeah. Yeah. 37. And, you know, I, I mean, I'll tell you, I do a lot of surveys because, you know, we're passionate about quality. But if I have more than five questions, uh, the only time I'm going to complete those is when I am really angry <laughs> with whoever <laughs> provided that service or product, mm-hmm. uh, right? You know, and and often I stop the survey after five questions yeah. uh, because I realize that they're asking me too many things, and we're very concerned that this is going to turn 
our process into not not that we want people to uh, just give us rave reviews all the time and make it simple for them to do that. We want that feedback, um, but we want to make sure that that feedback is fair. That if the only if we if our audience is only going to be if the the people that are completing these surveys are only those that are dissatisfied, that's going to mean it's going to skew the results. And again. The other purpose of OAS CAPS is to provide this information to the public. Uh, all of the surveys that we do in-house right now, that's stuff that we keep ourselves uh, in and are part of our quality improvement program. But this information will be public information when this goes out. We have been fighting this for years, not because we're fighting, the, as an industry, we've been fighting this for years, not because we don't want this data to be public. We're very proud of these numbers, but we, we feel that the OAS CAPS is going to skew that data in a negative direction and provide uh, misinformation to the public about the quality of care that's going in, just by the way, as it has in hospitals. It definitely has not been a, a very favorable trend in hospitals. So ASC Association, our dear friends over there, have been fighting this and explaining to CMS what our concerns are. And as a result of, and, and they keep proposing that this is going to be uh, added to the, the Medicare quality reporting measures, you know, for a number of years. And then they did finally add it or request that it be added as part of the, uh, uh, the proposed regulations in July. Uh, in November, when it came out, they did decide to delay it for the 20 until the 2025 reporting year but keep in mind that's not that far away uh can you believe it's almost christmas 2021 i mean look at how fast time goes it's not going to be very long before 2025 is upon us and this will require uh you to have a budget you know to hire an outside firm to do this uh you're going to have to make some decisions as to whether this completely replaces your quality uh, your um, your patient satisfaction surveys. One of the recommendations I have is I don't think this is going to give us good information that we're going to be able to use uh, for our own internal reporting. I think it's going to uh, skew information in a direction mm -hmm. that might not provide information that we desperately need as part of our quality improvement program. And as it says here, we're, as we're aware, ASCs find it you know, very difficult to get this information for patients. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, just what the participation rate's going to be. So, however, you need to prepare uh, for the future. So we have a question. Are you recommending that we track the ASC 1 through 4 in a way that's different than the G codes? You want me to help you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, the G codes are irrelevant now. So, That's uh, right. But tracking that information. So what you need to do is, what we used to do is, and I'll Christina describe it a little bit more. We took all this data that came out of our quality improvement process and then converted it into G codes. So it's actually going to be That's simpler right. now. You don't need to convert That's them right. into G codes. Just take that raw data, turn it into uh, you know uh, a quality measure. Which it, really, in essence, it's going to be the same process you use in quality improvement. Now you're, you're taking one step out of it. Is that well said, Christina? Well said, Mr. Galen. <laughs> and that was a great question, though, because that yeah. uh, really gets to the heart of it, and right. yeah, it brings up a very good point: is that if we don't intervene in this process, we're going to have just going to like going to be like so many things that that happen in the government you're going to continue gathering information that you no longer need in a in a format that you no longer are reporting so uh, yeah cut out that system there's no need for it in the future but yeah, keep the data that generated right. those g codes because that data eventually is going to go through a web-based portal not right. the claims where the g codes originally had been um, submitted 
Right. And, and really, so, so can we track this manually like we do any other, any ex- other manual process? Uh, so exactly, Julie, what, what's going to happen with this is now it's just going to be straightforward. Your track, I know you're tracking all of those, those elements already. already. Um, and uh, so you're uh, the same data that you're reporting to your quality improvement committee on a quarterly basis is exactly the data that you're going to be reporting to CMS, you know, through qualitynet.org. Um, and I mean, it really, it's going to be very simple. And I, I want to also make a point here. Uh, Sue and I interviewed Phil Prentice, the ASC Association, uh, our dear friend. And uh, he pointed out that we were actually upset when they removed ASC 1 through mm-hmm. 4, because those were measures that we uh, compare very favorably to uh, to, uh, to hospitals. And it was one of those measures that we liked being reported. It wasn't very difficult, even with the G-code reporting, <clears throat> to do it. And I, uh, and we're, we're, we're happy to have it back. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of a little upset that it's not going, you know, right away, because I think it would have been a measure that is easily tracked, easily reported and would show us in very favorable light. So COVID-19 vaccination, we knew this was coming. So a little bit of background on that in the past, one of the quality improvement, uh, one of the quality reporting measures, uh, was, uh, flu vaccine uh, vaccination rates. Uh, and you had to report those. Those that have been around for a couple of years might remember that you had to report that data through NHSN, which is a, a part of the uh, the CDC, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it was always difficult. Uh, reporting to NHSN requires you to set up an account with NHSN, which uh, has to, in order to set that account up, you actually have to provide a lot of personal data about yourself, including your own social security number. So whoever becomes that reporting entity with NHS, NHSN has to, uh, to provide a lot of personal data to the government about themselves in order to demonstrate that they are a real individual. Um, and then it disappeared or, or it was, it stopped being a requirement. Now, some States still required you to be reporting this information. Um, but, um, this, the, uh, but there was no requirement as part of the Medicare quality reporting program. And then of course, COVID-19 occurred and in, uh, 20, and then now beginning with collection this year, this coming year in 2022, you need to uh, gather information regarding who is vaccinated, what is the percentage of vaccination in your organization, and that will be reported through the NHSN portal. So those of you that let your NHSN uh, registration elapse, which probably are most of you, um, start working on it now. Uh, trust me, you probably want to start in January getting your account set up. Um, you have to log in regularly to NHSN to keep your account rec- uh, active. So make sure you do that. There's going to be much more details in the future. I believe there was a webinar. And did you join that webinar? I can't remember. Somebody joined, somebody from our company joined that webinar about it, but uh, more information to come and we will be talking about it on the, the podcast, I'm sure, uh, shortly. So again, um, and I know this is a very controversial topic, uh, vaccine, um, you know, especially with the vaccine mandates. Uh, many of you are going to be reporting 100% because that is your state requirement. And of course, more news to come on what happens at the federal level as to whether the CMS requirement uh, will go through. At the present time, the, the vaccine mandate at the federal level uh, has been uh, put on hold. Uh, so there are a couple measures that which is our, which is important for you to understand uh, occur uh, that you actually don't have to do anything about. They're being reported directly 
to CMS, but they involve you. Um, and there are three of them. So ASC 12, which is a facility seven-day risk standardized hospital visit rate after outpatient colonoscopy. So if a patient shows up in a hospital after having a colonoscopy performed in your surgery center, uh, CMS requires the hospital to report that to uh, as part of the quality reporting measure, and it will be used as part of your quality improvement statistics. So this is one of the reasons that we do encourage you to make sure you follow up with your physicians about any patients that are, uh, are uh, uh, admitted to a hospital within at least seven days uh, after the, the colonoscopy is performed. Um, and that include that as part of your quality improvement reporting process. Now, as we know, especially with older patients who might have many other comorbidities, there's a lot of different reasons that somebody would be uh, admitted to a hospital after a colonoscopy. And I would, I don't know if this is true, but I would say quite a number of them, if not the vast majority of them probably have nothing to do hopefully don't have anything to do with the colonoscopy that you perform, but it doesn't matter. CMS is requiring the hospitals to report that information to, uh, as part of the quality improvement process. And since you don't have to intervene in this, you will not know this statistic until it is published, uh, you know, publicly. So you really do want to make sure that you are aware of all of these things uh, and can respond to any, you know, public uh, discussion about this. So uh, do keep track of, of uh, this statistic in your quality improvement program. Uh, then they added ASC 17, which is hospital visits after orthopedic ambulatory surgery procedures. Uh, so again, same situation is that uh, if the hospital sees a patient admitted after an orthopedic set, uh, procedure, they're going to be required to uh, report that. And then uh, again, ASC 18 adds one more, which is after urological ambulatory surgery center procedures. So again, um, I think, um, and by the way, I was just thinking, Christina, do you know offhand how many days afterwards for 17 and 18? I'm assuming it's seven days, right? I mean, because it can't be forever. I mean, I can't imagine that, that is open-ended. So I'm, I'm making the assumption it's seven days. But as part of your quality improvement program, you need to be tracking anybody that is admitted to a hospital within seven days just to make sure you're capturing all of these things. I believe it's seven days, John. I'll double check. But I'll yeah, I'm, I'm a surprised because I copied and pasted that right from the rule. So uh, I uh, I just noticed when I looked at it now that it was uh, not specified in that in that thing. But it, I, I can't imagine it's anything other than seven days. Uh, let's talk a little bit about public reporting. So data collected through the uh, quality reporting program is going to be reported publicly so that people with Medicare and other consumers can find and compare the quality of care provided at ambulatory surgery centers. So this is going to be public information. And publishing this data can improve facility performance by providing benchmarks of uh, selected uh, clinical areas and publicly reviewed facility data. So there's two parts to this. One is, remember, your patients now have access to this information to determine whether they want to come to you. And it, of course, it's also going to provide uh, data that you can use to benchmark yourself against other organizations. So uh, keep in mind that this might be a, a good way for you to be able to start benchmarking yourself against other organizations. And if you compare favorably to your competition and community, it could be a good marketing tool. Present time, it is uh, based upon uh, its payment or your, you get your full rate just for reporting the data. In the future, there will be a measure as yet undetermined uh, as to how uh, that um, 
the quality data will transform into um, your payment system. Uh, I don't work in hospitals anymore. I know that the hospital system is based or they have started that transition. I guess I, I should study that a little bit more. Do you have any um, observations on that, Christina? I mean, you you serve in different areas, that more areas than I do, as to how in the past CMS has adjusted payment rates for quality? Um, other than the reductions, that's all yeah. I, I've seen is just yeah. the reductions because they're not getting the information out there or um, providing that the needed information to Medicare. But that's all I've had was the two, that 2% reduction. Yeah, I don't think any of us have any experience in that at all. And, and that'll be a, an eye opener for us. You know, hopefully we'll start to mm -hmm. see some at least... Um, thought, you know, thoughts as to how they expect to do that in the future. But, uh, you know, we've been doing this since 2012. I was just thinking this is about almost 10 years. Well, 2022 will be 10 years. Um, and we're still only doing pay for reporting. I think we all anticipated that it would transform into pay for performance or pay for quality, um, you know, in less than 10 years. I, I, I have no idea. Nobody's really even spoken about when that transition would be expected, but I can't imagine it going another 10 years before they start to do that. But uh, with so much turmoil right now and, you know, government and, and, and the difficult, let's face it, you know, there's, there's gotta be, it's gotta be a very complex process for transforming this information into, into uh, pay for quality type uh, information. So you know, stay tuned. We'll see if there is any more information about that. Um, if you were to do a search for uh, care compare on the uh, medicare.gov website, the, the location changes, that's why we don't have a link. Uh, they do publish that information and quality of care provided to patients. This information is made available to inform consumers and to encourage healthcare facilities to make continued improvements in care quality. Uh, it is generally refreshed by annually by the SCQR program. In other words, it's not real-time information that's up there. Um, and previous year's facility scores and payment adjustment results are available in the provider data catalog. Again, just search for that uh, on the CMS website, and you should be able to pull it up. And John, um, it is definitely seven days, but okay, um, I didn't know if you had the newest manual from 2022. If not, we can maybe put that in the box, the Dropbox. Yeah, thank you. I, I did use that to prepare my slides here, but I did okay. not drop them in the Dropbox, so I will uh, do that. And can you believe it, everyone? I am going to end early. I'm sure we're not going to end early. Oh. I'm sure we're going to have a conversation continuing about this, uh, especially in this last slide. So this is the last slide. What do you do to prepare? Well, you want to make sure that you can log into qualitynet.org portal so that you can be prepared to report the second quarter data, report in the second quarter of 2022. Make sure you can log into NHSN so that you can start reporting. Now, that data reporting will not be uh, until uh, later on in 2022, uh, date as yet uh, to be determined. As soon as you can get your account set up in both of those places, uh, do that. One fair warning, one of the challenges that we have within our company as we help our clients through this is that, uh, as we've talked about quite a bit, uh, Ann and Christina, there's a lot of turnover right now in all of our staff. And, uh, and sometimes, the quality net reporter, the person that's doing that reporting is not the nurse manager. Sometimes it is somebody in the business office, some of the people that are on, on this session right here. So um, make sure that uh, the if you're the administrator, that you are well aware who is the reporter, both for NHSN and for quality net. Uh, and that uh, and the administrator probably should be the account um I'm sorry, I forgot the term for already, but the individual that is responsible for maintaining that account uh, and that there is a good transition 
Um, here's a good point uh, to make is that any time that you have a transition between two administrators or two nurse managers or two quality improvement coordinators, uh, there needs to be some um, transition, you know, documentation. In other words, what are the things that you need to to uh, uh, to move over? It always seems to. This is just a, off the top of my head right now, Ann and Christina. You know that it is always a difficult transition because half the time we just don't know what accounts you're maintaining. Uh, in your that's organization, right. you know, what do you need to change around? I just was just thinking well, about that's that. That's a key point. And, and as you've seen on Ask a Connect, where somebody says the person who was the, the, who had the account left and nobody knows how to get into it. Right. And, and you don't know the passwords and you don't know. And getting that stuff changed is a nightmare. Yeah. So, you, that transition is critical. Um, it's just, and people are leaving left and right with very little notice and their managers, you know, what happened to the 30 day notice? Right. Hopefully they'll give you two weeks, but there's a lot in that two week period of the transition. You're still doing cases. You're still trying to maintain your operations. And how are they, when are you going to carve out that time to do that transition? And yet you have to do it. Right. And sometimes you don't even, you know, with somebody leaving so suddenly, you don't have that recall of every little thing that they do, every bullet point. I would recommend putting that in their job description as well, just to say, you know, this is what this position is going to be doing this quality reporting yeah. or quality. You know, some some facilities are so small, they don't have a quality right. administrator or coordinator. Um, so it may be the business office manager or it may be the a CNO or um, the nurse administrator that's doing it. Um, so it's good to have it listed somewhere that who is actually doing it because somebody leaves and the first thing you aren't think you're thinking about is oh quality measures no you're thinking about uh what about the staffing they were doing this that and the other i think quality measures tends to go on the on the wayside unless it's something that's got to be entered now or it's due at that that month so um definitely um have it recorded and those passwords yeah i mean to me, you have to have a checks and balances that there's, you know, another person that's going to have that access or that, you know, that way of access, um, whether it's under lock or key or whatever. And a lot of times passwords change every 30 days, depending. Um, but you don't want to be in, as what Ann said, a situation where uh, I don't know what who it was, where it was, what the passwords were, how to even get in, what the login is. That's is a that is a nightmare. So. Uh, continuing with what you need to do to prepare, obviously continue to collect data for, you know, the four that we've talked about, the ASC nine, um, you know, it's probably a little bit of a misnomer. You probably are not doing, uh, ASC 11 right now, but you, uh, it is voluntary. If you do decide you want to do this, which I think would mean that you probably are crazy, um, then, uh, you know, be prepared for, uh, you know, start experimenting with doing the, um, the ASC 11, uh, information gathering again, I, I will state that I hope that ASC 11 is going to go away. I'm hoping that ASCA will win its argument on this one, and this won't become part of the, the future. But we do need to start that conversation with the offices, at least have that, you know, at a next quality improvement committee meeting where you have a ophthalmologist in there say, hey, listen, this is what CMS is proposing. What do you think we can do? How do you think we might be able to do this if it does go through? And of course, continue getting that information for normothermia and unplanned anterior vitrectomy. I, I want to go back to normothermia for a second, because one of the things I don't know and if you've run into this, people tend to forget about this particular measure uh, until like 
the fourth quarter when they start to realize, oh my goodness, I haven't getting any of this data. Um, so uh, this is something that you really should be reporting. It's not, um, I, I would state among our clients, it's not a traditional measure that's included in your quality improvement program. So many of you are probably only tracking it for ASQR, uh, ASCQR uh, data reporting requirements. Um, but it, it does sound to me, I, I would probably recommend including this as part of your regular, regular reporting uh, process. And make it, you know, have logs available about this information. Of course, if you are using an electronic medical record, um, that will make your life so much easier when you're gathering this information. But if you're doing this manually, this could be a very difficult pro uh, process. And uh, of course, begin collecting data for ASC 20, which is the COVID 19 vaccination. And do you want to talk a little bit about how to uh, keep that information in your employee records there? Might be you just got to keep it confidential because it's related to employee health. So you don't want it. You don't want to broadcast it everywhere. We we're in a hiatus right now, and that everything's on hold as far as vaccines. But you've got uh, mandates, yeah, mandates, yeah. Um, and but that could change tomorrow. I mean, the way things are going, it could change tomorrow. So number one, do you have a list for each of your employees stating whether or not they've been vaccinated? Do you know? I've asked a couple of different administrators that I've interacted with this week on surveys, they did not know who on their staff was was um, that had obtained the vaccines and not. And I said, but you've got to know that because if this is implemented, they can't work if they haven't had the vaccine. And they look at me like, really? I said, yeah. yes, really? So number one, do you know who's been vaccinated and who hasn't? Now, in my surgery centers, I designated an employee health nurse. That was one of those categories, extra jobs. But that nurse was responsible for maintaining all of this information. It wasn't me as the administrator. And she's the only one that had access to that. That's just an aside. That's the way I did it. But who's been vaccinated in your center? Are they considered fully vaccinated? And those of you that may have seen the news this morning, Fauci can't even decide how to describe fully vaccinated. He said that's a fluid term. So anyway. Yeah. And then are they going to mandate the boosters? It's not at all mandated now. Uh, but there are people that are out there that think that they have that believe that the boosters are mandated. So keep all of that information in a private employee file, but develop a plan. And you can do this part of your management team on what you're going to do in the uh, event that they make it a mandate. Because say you have 10 clinical employees, 10 nurses, and three of them are not vaccinated and three of them are not going to get vaccinated. But it takes eight of those people to run the surgery center every day. The vaccine's mandated. Three of them are not vaccinated. Now they can't even touch a patient. They can't come into your center anyway that there's patients treated. What is your plan? What are you going to do? You're going to cancel cases? Are you going to rearrange all of the surgeries? Your surgeons will love this. You have to consolidate the schedule to accommodate for the lack of staff. So it's a big deal. And, and your record keeping is going to be it's like the flu vaccine. When we first started with the flu vaccine, everybody thought, oh, this is going to be a, man, a nightmare. But we got through that. We'll get through this, too. But um, good record keeping, knowledge of what's going on, and make sure your infection preventionist is staying on top of this every single day, looking at the CDC website, looking at what's being mandated or not or not mandated. And, Great, and we do have a question in the Q&A. For ASC 11, would you have to collect the pre and post data for every patient that has cataract surgery, or can you survey a percentage of the patients? 
So my understanding of that measure is that it is a hundred percent. It's not part of those uh, of that. Um, um, like you can with normothermia, for example, do a, uh, um, a sample of it, statistically uh, relevant sample. So good question. Um, and again, we don't have a lot of clarification since it's not totally in place right now, but the expectation at this point is that it's a hundred percent sample. Uh, <laughs> and I know that's not the answer that you wanted to have. So sorry about that. We have 30 seconds left for any questions. Oh, and, and the last bullet is be ready for 2023 collection of ASC one through four. And remember it's no longer claims based as uh, Christina and I have already talked, I think quite a bit about, so. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and upcoming speaking engagements for John and his staff. So we got a couple more uh, topics that we are trying to get to. Uh, we have still have that interview with Scott Magison uh, about how uh, what to do when your coding or billing staff uh, leaves suddenly. And uh, I was going to do the annual review of the OIG report uh, this week, but unfortunately, uh, I realized that the ASCQR reporting was much more important. So because of the timeliness of it, so we'll talk about the OIG report in our next uh, episode. The Indiana Federation of Ambulatory Surgical Centers Spring Conference and Trade Show is April 22nd, 2022 in Carmel, Indiana. And I'll be uh, one of the speakers during that yep. conference. And ASCA 2022 will be in Dallas, Texas, April 27th through the 30th. Uh, and I'll be speaking on a special track for ASC administrators and I'll also be talking about finance and accounting. Uh, so that's uh, for more information, go to ASCAssociation.org. The New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Centers Spring Conference will be held May 10th and 11th in Saratoga Springs, New York. And uh, all of our clients from Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies that are in the state of New York are invited to a, a special uh, pre-conference uh, conference uh, at 10 <laughs> o'clock on the uh, 10th, where we'll uh, we'll go through recent events uh, mm -hmm. with the company, uh, introduce our, all of our employees. I think virtually all of our uh, New York-based employees so. will be there. Uh, and then we're going to, at the end of that, we're going to uh, have lunch, and then we're going to present a special presentation on, uh, on uh, infection control. That should be good. I'm looking forward to it. And Saratoga Springs is such a nice Beautiful area, area. Yeah, especially in the spring. Mm -hmm. The ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camp is coming up May, the May 2022 cohort, May 24th through the 27th. And uh, for more information, sign up. Of course, go to the ASCpodcast.com website. We still have some openings left. The New Jersey ASC Association's annual conference is going to be June 7th and 8th, and it's at the Hilton East Brunswick. And I'll be speaking about succession planning. Actually, I actually just was working on the presentation today, so um, I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCpodcast.com. We have a credentialing conference, the Fall 2021 Finance and Accounting Conference, the Conditions for Coverage Conference, the Medical Director Conference, and the Administrator's Boot Camp self-paced version. We do want to remind everybody that our patron program, which is also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance, operations, and financial management resource for busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, important links that uh, you might find useful, policies and procedures, forms, drills, and discounts on services and books and access to AAU credits. 
And then, of course, as we've mentioned earlier, uh, on a, a weekly basis, right now it's on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time, uh, we have a, a drop-in session where you can ask any questions you want. It used to be only about an hour long. Now it's been stretching out almost two hours on, <laughs> on Saturday. So that's probably many people feel that's one of the biggest benefits of being a patron member of the podcast. And, of course, being a patron member helps to support the, uh, the work that we do here. And for more information, of course, visit ASCPodcast.com. So that's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. And please spread the word about our podcast with your friends and colleagues and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by the team over at Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Galritis, Amy Durbano, Lori Rodericks, and Ann Geyer. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah. And the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast channels. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading regulatory compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast has been an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you're interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com. <laughs>